This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Michael Cinquanti to the program. How you doing, Mike? Good, Bob. It's good to be back with you. Well, good to have you on again. Mike Cinquanti publishes a daily blog of birthdays of people born in his hometown, and mine as well, Amsterdam, New York. It's a really fun way to learn about local history. Mike also keeps track of the birthdays of major sports stars, and uh, maybe in real life, he's heads a Genium Publishing, a leading provider of comprehensive environmental uh, publications. He's written several books on safety in the workplace. He's married to another uh, Amsterdam native, Rosemary Rossi Sinquanti, has a number of children and uh, grandchildren, and is out now with his second book, a compilation of birthdays in Amsterdam. It's called A Year's Worth of Amsterdam, New York Birthdays, second edition. Uh, It's available uh, many places, including the Liberty Fresh Market on uh, Route 30 in uh, Amsterdam, which is a great place to go for local history books in that part of the Mohawk Valley. So let me ask you first a general uh, question, Mike. You, these birthdays just uh, keep on coming. Do you think you'll ever run out of them? Um, yeah. Actually, Bob, I, I'm, I am ending the blog. Um, it, it has. I haven't run out of birthdays. I've just run out of time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. But but you're you're still uh announcing different individual birthdays from time to time. Yeah, I will I will right up until the end of this year and then um I'm going to be doing some other things. I'm I'm thinking about where I'm headed in the future with local writing. I'm going to continue. I'm just not sure how or, or yet. Cuz you had written a book before the birthday books which had to do with your uh, early uh, life uh, Christmas experiences. Right. Right. And I, that's, you know, I, I enjoy writing. Uh, it's a great um, uh, stress reducer for me. I truly enjoy it. And these birthdays, uh, these birthdays have given me a way of doing it on a daily basis. It's a very disciplined way that has allowed me to, uh, you know, do something I love. And so I'm looking to keep writing. I'm just not exactly sure in what format or how I will. All right. Well, this, uh, again, I, I've yet to get my copy of a year's worth of Amsterdam, New York birthdays, second edition. I have the uh, first edition. So I asked Mike to come up with a number of names that I could ask about to uh, form the, the basis of this interview from a content point of view. Let's go way back in, in time uh, to the Revolutionary War, and you say you have a, a man in the in the book named David Shepard, I believe it's pronounced, a member of the Minutemen Regiment that fought at Lexington and Concord. Can you tell us about him? Yes, he was. Uh, uh, he's born in about 1740. He was a native New Englander, and um, he became a doctor. He went to Yale and became a doctor and established a practice in Western Massachusetts, a place called Chester. And uh, was a uh, very was very uh, a loyalist, uh, not a loyalist, but he was very patriotic on the rebels' cause at the time, and became a member of the committee of correspondence for his town. And then, uh, when Lexington and Green happened, the the British were going to be raiding supply depots, and that's what the whole thing was about. And so everybody rushed to Lexington and Concord, and he was one of the people who rushed there. So he was at Lexington and Concord when the first shots were fired, and he was actually the surgeon for the Minimum Regiment, and uh, after the war, he returned to where he came from in Western Mass, and then about 1802, 
for some reason, and I'm not sure why, he moved to Amsterdam, and he bought a farm or started a farm up on the top of Steadwell Avenue. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the next 20 years, he farmed that land and ended up uh, selling it, but eventually it became the Fairview Cemetery. Really? Yes. That is yes. interesting because my people are buried there at the there Fairview you go. Cemetery. And when you were saying, I wonder why he came at that time, maybe it is a little late, but I do believe that after the revolution, because this was really uh, still somewhat frontier up in our area, that some of the soldiers were granted land. True, and that could be the reason. I just couldn't find any uh, any link to that that would make me be able to say that with certainty, so I didn't put it in there, but that probably was the reason. David Shepard, a Revolutionary War veteran, uh, and now another uh, person you write about in the new book, uh, came to prominence during the Civil War, and that was Francis Elias Spinner. Uh, tell us about him. Uh, another gentleman who wasn't born here, um, he was born out near Herkimer. His father was actually a priest in Germany, a Roman Catholic priest. And again, uh, not knowing this for certain, but he converted to Protestantism and uh, moved to America. And I, I think the reason he did that was he fell in love, and priests couldn't marry. Protestant ministers could, so he married, came to America, and they had nine children. Francis was the first one. They settled out near Herkimer. And when Francis came of age, the father wanted him to learn a trade. Uh, they started out as he started out as an apprentice in a, as, in a store out near Herkimer, a merchant, and uh, it didn't work out. The store failed. His father got him a got him another apprenticeship in Albany because he was a minister. He must have had this network uh, throughout the state, and he went to Albany to learn how to make candy. But when he got there. He became friends with a gentleman by the name of Gainsbourg, who they named the little village up in Saratoga after. Uh, and he was a politician, and he got uh, Mr. Spinner a job in a, in a company as an accountant and a salesman. And when his father heard about it, uh, he didn't want his son to be a salesman, so he arranged for him to get another apprenticeship in Amsterdam, uh, working for a leather maker, a person who made reins and bridles. And I wasn't able to uncover the name of who it was, but a person who made leather accessories for horses. Mm-hmm. And he came here, and for two years he was in Amsterdam and uh, actually became a member of what they called a traveling library where wagons would come through with book collections. And he did a lot of reading while he was in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up moving back to Herkimer and opening a store there. Um, the store was very successful. He... Uh, became very popular. Naturally, when you become a very popular businessman, one of the things you do is you run for office. He became the sheriff of the county. Uh, he, his store, the, the the more successful his store was, uh, he became more influential. He started a bank, mm-hmm. uh, ran for Congress, got elected in Congress in 1854. And when the Civil War started in 1861, um, you know, naturally, Congress lost most of its representatives, to, not most of them, but many influential ones. The North gained a lot of power in Congress. Spinner became much more prominent. Lincoln made him the treasurer of the United States. Mm-hmm. So a gentleman who lived in Amsterdam for two years in the 1820s was now treasurer of the United States. And he was the gentleman who signed the check that was given to the Tsar of Russia for, I think it was $7,200,000 as payment for the territory of Alaska in right. 1867. I also b- believe that Spinner was known for bringing women into the federal workforce, maybe Correct. for the first time. 
first time. First, the first federal department to hire women was the, the, the Department of the Treasury, and it was done under the auspices of Spinner. And Spinner used the excuse that um, the civil, it wasn't really, it was a good excuse. The Civil War had taken away so much manpower, he didn't have any males to hire. But in truth, he was very much a, a, ladies, a woman's advocate. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, he was memorialized in a, a statue by uh, a group of, uh, of women after his death. I, I think you're right. I, I, I've, that's the statue in Herkimer you spoke about earlier, I believe. Yeah. Well, let's move on here. Maybe I'll go out of uh, kind of chronological order because some of the uh, names to come are uh, well known to people who are uh, like my age or Michael's age. He is a bit younger, <laughs> who grew up in Amsterdam. <laughs> One of them I did want to get in because I, I knew him fairly well, and I gather you did as well, and that's uh, the Roman Catholic priest Father Joseph Gerzon. Uh, he became very, you know, kind of nationally famous as an author, uh, but he does have real connections to Amsterdam. Oh, absolutely. He uh, he was the uh, pastor of Mount Carmel Parish, and uh, when I met my wife, she was a member of the Mount Carmel Parish, so I started going to the Mount Carmel Church. And uh, Father Grison uh, was just, uh, I, I can't put it any other way than to say he was just a wonderful, wonderful man. He he was, uh, uh, but he couldn't give a sermon. <laughs> I, I know you said that. It was surprising me. I, I, I think I've heard him do a sermon. I didn't think they were that. Uh, well, I bad. heard him do them week after week after week after week after week. And yeah. I, I don't want to say he couldn't give a sermon. He just wasn't, he wasn't as good of a speaker as he was a writer. Okay. And he was an excellent writer. He was also a, a genius. He, he also had uh, a heart of of a true Christian. I mean, he did things in the community for the aged, for the poor, for the incarcerated uh, that that really were models. Uh, you know, started the office, the office of the aging, um, the food for the elderly, the wheels, meals on wheels. He was so influential in all those things. He really, truly was a builder of mm-hmm. great things in our community. And when I say he couldn't give a sermon, I used to joke with him a little bit about that, you know. I said, "Father, can you keep it a little bit shorter? Or can you get on point?" You know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, well, he, used to, he used to wander a little bit. Yep. Yeah. Now, and also, you mentioned his good heart. Unfortunately, physically, he didn't have a good heart, but it had a good outcome in a way because he retired <laughs> from the priesthood, and that's when he turned his attention to writing. That's right, and uh, the, you know, I'm. I'm looking for his uh, his bio in front of me as you speak, but y- yes, uh, his weak heart was the reason why he um, was was forced to resign from the active priesthood, and he ended up writing a book, and um, that's what I'm trying to remember. Oh, the Get, book is Joshua. The book Joshua right, and the and, Joshua he, series. Uh, he it wrote started a, with it started with a book about Joshua, and the book about Joshua was uh, it was the way Father Gazon, um visualized or, or thought of Jesus and, mm-hmm. and how, how Jesus would have behaved if he was here now. And it just captured everybody's, um, everybody's attention. And he ended up, I think, writing three or four of them. No, he, he a wrote movie. a series of them, and they were, they were national bestsellers. They even made a movie out of one of them. They made a movie out of it. Right. Uh, the movie didn't do as well. No, no. And the books, I guess, uh, but I do know that he received a royalty check of a million dollars Right. Uh, from from his publisher, an advance royalty check for a million dollars for the second book. So that's how well the first book did. And did, did. To, maybe to be, be fair to him, you know, he 
put a lot of that money or put most of that money into charitable work or he started he this. He put all of it in. Yeah. That. He, yeah. That's the kind of guy he was. He he opened up a beautiful uh, retreat home in Altamont and uh, you know, you could go there for retreats, but he also did all sorts of videos and books that he would hand out for free, wouldn't charge for them, and he would pay for all that. And um, he was he's just an amazing man and, uh, you know, a, a, true, a true priest, a true Christian. And he did uh, pass away, I think it was November of 2015. He did. And when I wrote my Christmas book, I literally sent it to him before, before I published it. And he read it for me, and he loved it. And uh, he, he made a couple edits, which I followed precisely. But that was the last time I spoke to him, and he said, Mike, just keep writing, just keep writing. Yeah. And, uh, and about two months later, he died. Father Joseph Gerzon. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment more with Mike Sinquanti about his uh, latest book, A Year's Worth of Amsterdam, New York Birthdays, Second Edition. This is Bob Cudmore. Here at the Historian's Podcast, we depend on you, our listeners, to help us pay for production expenses. Please donate online at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians2016. Or you can send a check made out to Bob Cudmore to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you. We're talking with the Amsterdam author Mike Sinquanti about his second a birthday book. Uh, let me uh, bring up, you know, a kind of a, a hard uh, subject, you know, I, and I imagine for both of us to to discuss, really. But I'm glad you you did this because uh, I've kind of studiously avoided uh, writing about uh, the native of uh, Amsterdam, uh, Lemuel Smith, who uh, is uh, on, uh, in prison still for committing a number of murders. He was a serial killer. And his apparent first victim uh, was in uh, Smith's native uh, Amsterdam. But you have a story in your book, not about Smith, really, but about that woman. Uh, and it sounds like both of us know the family, uh, the, the woman being Dorothy uh, Waterstreet. Can you tell us about her? Um, yes. When I, was, uh, when I was a youngster, I used to go to the Guy Park Avenue playground and... Uh, the Guy Park Avenue playground used to have summertime um, students that were hired to supervise the activities of the kids. And Janamy Water Street was the uh, supervisor one year at the Guy Park Avenue playground. And that's how I first became familiar with the Water Street family. And she was just a wonderful person, you know, uh, just a, a tremendously positive, great uh, playground supervisor. Never knew the story about her mother, never said a word to us about that. But, um, Naturally, you know, one of the things that I, I try I didn't want to do was uh, celebrate in any of my books notoriety or, or people who did not do nice, the good things. And um, one of the things we we always forget about when tragedies happen are the victims of those tragedies. And Dorothy Waterstreet was just simply an outstanding citizen of this community. She really was. She was a great mom. She was a great businesswoman. Uh, she helped her husband run the funeral parlor, but she also had a. Um, it was it was sort of a. Um, uh, a combination letter company she used to do mailings for people keep addresses straight Mm -hmm. Uh, she was a very active volunteer she she died because um, she was walking home 
from a a meeting of volunteers of her tr- of her church, Trinity Lutheran on Guy, on Guy Park Avenue. Um, she was just an incredible woman who who worked very hard, did tremendously good things for her community, uh, and and was killed tragically. And when she was killed, um, you know, because they n- did not catch the killer uh, in in the beginning, uh, her family was persecuted in many ways for what happened because. You know, if they didn't catch the killer, that could mean that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the father did it or whatever. So it was a really, really, not just a tragedy that she was killed, but it was a tragedy that uh, this gentleman got away with it for so long. And because it was unsolved for as long as it was, um, this family was, you know, just torn apart by the by yeah. the. And I don't episode. believe Smith was ever con- tried and convicted of, of that murder. He, he, he was wasn't. Tried, he was not. Yeah, he tried and convicted of other murders, but not that one. He was not. But she, again, she really was an incredibly active, positive force in our community, and uh, she was killed, and people forgot about that, and people forgot about her. So I, I took the opportunity on her birthday on April 11th to, um, to wish her a happy birthday and to try and, and remember the great things that she did. Another uh, woman who came from Amsterdam figured in a major news story of the 20th uh, century, the sinking of the Titanic. That would be Anne Forby Hoyt. Uh, Can you tell us about her? Uh, Yep. She, uh, February 28th, her birthday, and she married a a yachtsman, uh, a very wealthy, uh, a very, came from a wealthy family, and he raced yachts. Mm -hmm. And... uh, she married him in New York City. She was born here in Amsterdam to a to a couple that came from New York City, um, and uh, the mother was an Amsterdam native. Her last name was Hewitt, mm-hmm. and uh, her father, the Hewitts, here in Amsterdam, lived here for a long time. Her father, the Hewitts, her her father was a butcher. I'm sorry, um, and so Anne was born here used to go to New York to visit with her mom's family when she was in New York once, met this yachtsman. This yachtsman married her, and um, he would travel all over the world racing yachts, and uh, they were on the, the maiden voyage of the Titanic. And fortunately, they were wealthy enough to uh, have a first-class cabin because it was the first-class cabins that were closest to the lifeboats. And um, when, when the uh, ship hit the iceberg, the doctor on the ship came to their cabin they had been eating they had been dining with him every night and the doctor came to their cabin specifically to warn them to get to the lifeboats as quickly as possible and that's what happened she got on the lifeboat the story is that he did not but that he jumped overboard and that he was pulled onto that lifeboat after he was in the water mm-hmm. so um he they both survived uh and uh we had a, a native of amsterdam who survived on the titanic yeah uh, and I believe they both had, you know, fairly long lives after that. After that, yeah. I, I <clears throat> that she died in 1932, so at the age of 51 of cancer. So she didn't live too, too, too long. But um, she did. She was able to, you know, at least get get out of that water or get off that ship and live. Another uh, name you've got in the the new birthday book is uh, Gerald Fitzgerald. And I certainly remember um, he was head of uh, Fitzgerald's Bottling Works. Uh, they, they used to bottle the soda we drank. Yes, they did. And uh, my favorite was the cream soda because it was red. And it was the only red cream soda 
in production in the United States. Most most cream sodas to this day is is uh, creamy colored. Right. But uh, you used to sit at a holiday table in Amsterdam if you were like my family and and most were uh, with bottles of soda on the on the on the dining room table, and there would be a yellow one and a red one and a green one, and they were as bright as bright could be, and that was Fitzgerald's trademark. They made these bright-flavored sodas, and their best, of course, was their ginger ale. But um, very, very successful bottling company, and he was, Gerald Fitzgerald was the son of the founder, and um, actually his older brother died, leaving Gerald to run the company, and it was, a, it was a, one of those coincidences that worked out for the business because he turned out to be very good at what he did. And um, he ended up moving. Uh, he ended up building a second plant in Schenectady, which really was the revenue generator for the for the business over the last mm-hmm. its last uh, forty or fifty years of operation. But he started bottling Coca Cola and Mountain Dew and all other brands, and uh, just became a true uh, you know a true force in the, in the bottling industry. And uh, but started out on the East End, way down by Cranesville, uh, where the bottling plant was. And his trademark was always putting a piece of equipment in front of a big picture window so people who drove by or walked by could watch the machines at work. Yes, I, I hadn't thought of that, but that's that's so, right. Yeah. Another, uh, <clears throat> you have a couple of other profiles of businessmen. Uh, let me ask you about uh, one of them uh, who, you know, one of the businesses that he co-founded is, is still much with us today, and that would be Bud Heck. Bud Heck, yes. Snow Cone Joe. I <laughs> yeah, he started, I didn't realize that. He started out selling snow cones? He did. He was Snow Cone Joe. And as I talked when I used to hang around that playground with Janami Water Street, uh, supervised, uh, a blue van would drive up at some point in the afternoon, and it would uh, have the, the painting would be on the side with Snow Cone Joe. And what they sold was the crushed ice in one of those paper cones covered with syrup. And as I said, my favorite was cherry, and it cost 25 cents. Buy, I used to buy one every day. And uh, it was Bud Heck sitting inside the truck. And at Guy Park Avenue School, which is where I went to elementary school, when I was in fourth grade, we actually had French. We took French. And his wife, um, my French teacher, was a woman named Miss Bouvier. And Miss Bouvier was a distant relative of Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy at the time, the first lady of the United States. So one day in in class, I'll never forget this, she announced that she was engaged to Snow Cone Joe. She didn't call him Snow Cone Joe. She called him Monsieur Heck. Uh, so in any event, I started doing business with Bud Heck when he was Snow Cone Joe. And I used to give him 25 cents for um, snow cones. I then later became his neighbor up on McGibbon Avenue, and I started doing business with him again, and I ended up putting a swimming pool in my backyard from Snow Cone Joe, as I say. Bud Heck sold me the swimming pool. Wow. And uh, I raised a family of four kids. We all went skiing, and I bought all my skis and all our ski gear and all of our ski clothing from Snow Cone Joe. Huh. But he was an amazing man because him and John Daly got the idea. You know, they saw the trend that uh, America, uh, the baby boom generation, was spending money on recreation in large numbers, and they decided that this was more than just a trend, that they were going to try and take advantage of it as a business, and they opened up that ski chalet like building on Wallens Corners Road in Amsterdam, the first Alpen house and, and we all know the story from there. It's just it's been an amazing growth. And, yeah, for you know, those who don't, 
Yeah, um, Alpenhaus has really expanded into not not just winter sports equipment, but also recreational uh, vehicles. They, of all kinds, yeah. They have this big uh, sales lot uh, that you can see from the thruway. When you're... Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and they're in, they're, uh, they're in Port Chester, they're in Saratoga, they're in Amsterdam. Uh, they, are, they have just, it's, it's a truly amazing story, and, and that's what sometimes, uh, you know, I, I hear people say you can't make it here in Amsterdam, and uh, <laughs> you, you look at what the Hex and, the Dale, and John Daly did with that business and how their children, uh, how, how Bud's kids are, are, are still growing it. It's just an amazing, amazing story. Another uh, person you write about, I'm interested in this because I know her, but I don't know. Uh, I didn't know the one thing you mentioned and what you sent to me. And that's the uh, dance teacher, Virginia Noble, uh, who you write as the daughter of a legendary recorder editor. Yes, uh, her father was John Willoughby. He he was uh, considered, but he, he started, uh, he was the managing editor of the recorder, but he actually... He came from Midwest, the middle part of New York State as well. The thing that amazed me when I read about Virginia, who I knew personally, but her father's um, lineage, he's his, on his grandmother's side, he's related to Ethan Allen, and on his grandfather's side, he was related to Ulysses Grant, so he's in direct lineage. But he, was, he got into the newspaper business as a kid. Again, his dad was a minister. Uh, he was a smart young man. He got out of school when he was like 15, graduated from high school, and uh, came to Amsterdam first as a reporter, left to become an editor somewhere else, came back to Amsterdam, got a little bit better job, left to become editor of a, of a newspaper someplace else, got, came back to Amsterdam, and he was considered to be um, you know, one of the most prominent editors, managing editors of the newspaper in its history. Mm. And uh, you know, very, very good public speaker, Theodore Roosevelt wrote him letters uh, congratulating him on his editorials. Uh, staunch Republican, of course, but but he was uh, considered to be the dean of publishers in this area, uh, editors in this area. Well, let me. And his, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I, I well, let me finish the thought. You um, may be kind of self-serving, but this uh, program airs among other places on Rise, which is WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled. And last I knew. Uh, Virginia Noble's son John was one of the volunteers at Rise, uh, reading uh, the newspapers and and so forth. I met him. At, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. John. I, I I know of John. I've heard a lot of great stories about him, and I would not be at all surprised that he would be doing something like that. Yeah. Well, let me see. We're running rapidly out of time. Let's. We got a couple of minutes left. Let me ask you about the Lanzi family. Uh, in particular, you uh, profile Louis Lanzi. Who is he? Louis was uh, was a contemporary of mine. We are about the same age, and he was the son of Lorenzo, who opened the fantastic, the amazingly successful restaurant up on Union Street. And he was the grandson of Luigi, who was the patriarch of the, that side of the family, who opened up Lanzi's, the, the famous Lanzi's on Bridge Street. And as a child and a young man, I went to both those restaurants, and then Louis. Uh, decided that he was going to move him and his brothers. He has four brothers who are all active in the business. Decided they were going to move up to the Sack and Dog, a place called the Rock and Dog, went up for sale. It had failed, and he decided he was going to leave that very thriving business he had on Union Street to move up to Rock and Dog on the Sack and Dog and make it a a year-round successful restaurant, which nobody had been able to do. If you remember, Bob, back in the old days, the Sack and Dog was busy, but nothing like it is today. It's considered a a national uh, 
attraction yeah. more so. Yeah. Well, it, it came late to the party because it was a yeah. man-made uh, lake or reservoir, and uh, you know, and I think it attracted people that were not uh, of great means. I mean, a lot of people put up very modest camps up there. Very modest camps, and uh, but that started changing. But but the whole point was the whole the biggest question everybody asked Louis: How are you going to make money in the winter? I mean, back then it was busy in the summertime. People would go up there, but what are you going to do in the winter? And that's where Louis and his brothers, the, you know, whenever you went to a Lindsay's restaurant, you had a good time. They knew how to, <laughs> they knew how to have good time. So they started things like winter golf, where you would go up there and actually drive golf balls, orange-colored golf balls, out into the lake to see who could hit the ball furthest. They did, you know, winter festivals, ice fishing contests, and all of a sudden they were busy 12 months a year. Well, and as you know, they have added sites around the lake, and they, they've turned the Sacandaga into uh, – uh, a mini empire of, of yeah. their restaurant. You might, they, maybe they could rename it Lake Lansy. I don't know. They really could. <laughs> Lansy's <laughs> on the lake, the chief among them. And we're just out of time. Thank you to uh, Michael Sinquanti for uh, joining us. His latest book, A Year's Worth of Amsterdam, New York Birthdays, second edition. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.